0: leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Lathan Kraft. Lathan is an international best-selling author and host of the podcast The Other Side of the Church. On his podcast, he presents stories of church hurt and hope from familiar voices like author Bob Goff and recording artists Blanca and Matthew West. Lathan is also the founder of Made for Purpose, a coaching and consulting firm dedicated to helping people push past corporate molds to uncover what they're designed to do in this world. Now, before we talk about your book and your podcast i would like to get a feel for who you are and and how you got to where you're at right now so lathan thank you for for agreeing to uh talking with me uh or agreeing to talk with me on on the podcast here and uh just really like to uh dig right in so thanks
1: love it david thanks so much for having me on Yeah, if we if we talked about my story, um, when you go into a bookstore, you see a lot of the same types of stories. You know what I mean? Like you go into like autobiographies or biographies, and there's there's almost a uniformity to a lot of stories. And then like I I have young kids, so if I'm going to the kids kids book section, a lot of the same narratives. My story wouldn't probably be in the in the bookstore because my my story my childhood really if if there was one word to encapsulate my whole childhood, it'd be pain. Um, I, I grew up and was kind of thrown into this cycle of pain. Um, grew up as a single parent household. Mom's a stripper. I only saw her two hours a day. Um, when she dropped me off at my grandparents' house and picked me up the next morning. And so my whole life, I have I have to this day like 16 or 17 siblings that I all are half siblings. That I know nothing I, I, I know of who they are, uh, but I have no emotional ties to them because that's kind of just what I was born into um and really when my my mom my mom died when i was 7 years old she committed suicide and uh when i was going through that process i was forced into not for, well, kind of forced into this mentality of following a script my grandparents raised me and like the script was all i was raised by like you're going to do this you're going to do that you're going to do this you're going to do that and going from just complete chaos to just really just strict control was a, a mind cluster for me. Like I did even as a child, I didn't really know how to make that transition. And so my high school and college years really were, wait a second, something isn't right about this. Like what I, what I've thought was normal actually isn't normal. People aren't experiencing I'm experiencing. And I went to college to study ministry and psychology um, and quickly felt compelled and got my master's in leadership. Um, just because I am super passionate about leadership. And I think there's a common narrative uh, around the topic of leadership or, or around the topic of work or on the topic of corporate America, if you will, that's been the common narrative for a long time. And I think COVID really has put a forced stop on that narrative and a change has to happen and people just don't know what to do about it. Yeah.
0: I, I really was not expecting all of that. <laughs> that's uh uh, let's let's talk about your your life growing up where well where were you born were you born in texas
1: i was born in texas yeah and and i uh, a lot of my i was born in texas and i went to college in california and met my wife in california and now i'm back to texas i'm about a i'm about a block ironically from the house i grew up in so um back in the same city
0: so your mom was a, a dancer and um what did what did your grandparents do
1: my grandparents ironically which is why i have such a passion for black sheep um my grandparents are super conservative Southern baptist like she is the one that still to this day is not spoken of every other every other kid they had as a pastor or, or in some capacity she was just a black sheep um and so she, it's not she's they just don't talk about her. They, um, they don't talk about her life. Um, and she really was like, a, as I've grown older, I've been more and more curious about her life, which is really where a lot of my business, uh, building has come from.
0: I'm, I'm extremely curious. Um, <laughs> we don't, we don't have to talk about it right now, maybe offline. It, it, if, uh, you're uncomfortable talking about it now, but, um, what, what do you know about your mother?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I love that question. Um, I I know a lot of perceptions of her. Um, I don't know a lot of facts of her, if that makes sense. And so it's it's ironic. I only really have, you, you asked about siblings. I only have one sibling who's a half sibling um, that I have held tightly to for my whole life. She was there through all my childhood experience and all of that. She has a different dad uh, obviously. But uh, her perception of my mom and my aunt's perception of my mom, who is my mom's sister, are literally Jekyll and Hyde. It says that they're two separate people. Um, she views my mom as this disgusting, uh, uncaring person. My aunt views my mom as this loving, nurturing, never been a better woman in the world person. And so it's just this ironic dichotomy. And the only, literally, the only type of thing that's been that's been given to me from my mom um, was found through her journal. I found in her journal, which she'd ripped out a lot of pages, which makes sense. Um, just thinking about her perception and that led to her death. She ripped out a lot of her journals that she didn't want to be read and, and disposed of them, but her only journal that she left was her perception of church. And, um, from that article, because I was a pastor for, for a long time, from 16 to 26, I did full-time quote unquote ministry. And I've come to realize just through a lot of my healing and a lot of my process, the only time my mom was actually accepted in church was in the casket. That's the only time she was, she was allowed. And so from that, from that perspective has really shaped the podcast, really shaped a lot of things that I do is the church as a whole, if we looked at American church says they accept people like my mom, but actually they don't, they accept her when she's in a casket. And so, um, and then they give a narrative of her life that really confused me the seven-year-old kid. Like, first time I heard the name Jesus was at my mom's funeral and so like I, I had no idea who this Jesus was um but really it's it's really weird living in this mind trip of two expectations and two opposites and especially with grandparents people her parents who raised her who just don't talk about her um and it's also weird because another interesting fact about my life is my wife and my moms commit suicide same month, same year of our lives and so when we were in college we met through that connection of that empathy brought us together of like, okay. And she, she had a, a, a relationship with her mom. I really didn't. My mom was very distant from me in the sense that I mentioned earlier, she dropped us off at the grandparents and all those things. Like the emotional attachment was not as obvious with my mom as it was with, with Serena's mom. And so she has baggage there that she's worked through. I'm just super curious, even as you are of like, what was she like? What did she do? Why did she, why did she go to dancing? What was her, what was her narrative? Uh, obviously, she was a black sheep. And that's why a lot of my businesses have started with the black sheep mentality, because what if the black sheep had a story of gold?
0: As a seven-year-old boy, well, where in Texas uh, did you grow up? Tyler, it's about an hour from Dallas.
2: Is that south or? It's east of Dallas, east, east Texas. All right.
0: Yeah. So at seven years old. Growing up in in East Texas, you're introduced to to the church, and then you move in with your grandparents. Did any of your other siblings move into your grandparents' house with yours?
1: No. So Joyce, who is my only, this is how this is how crazy my family is. <laughs> so. Um, I was in I was in the hospital three months ago with brain surgery. Um, when I was in the hospital, I got a Facebook message from my sister that five of my sisters had died from COVID. And so, like, she's it's, it's just like a, a a flip that like, hey, by the way, so and so, so and so, so and so, so and so, they all died of COVID. And it's like that's that was just a relationship that is so commonplace for them. It's just this like, flippant, like, a, no emotional attachment, no feeling, no no, no anything. And so all I have to say, my mom, my sister, my half sister that I've clung tightly to was there that morning my mom committed suicide. She was, she saw her. I was the one that told her everything. Um, and then her biological dad, the day that that happened, took her and raised her in the same city, um, but very much far, far away from where my grandparents was. How many siblings did you say you have? Fifteen or sixteen? That's still that's still up, <laughs> up for debate. <laughs>
0: uh, so, fifteen or sixteen, and where were you? One of the the last children born? Are you one of the youngest?
1: I am. I am the youngest. Yeah. And from my mom and dad's side, my biological dad, and obviously all like that'd be a TLC show, right? Like if there was fifteen or sixteen of the same from the same mom. Um, but those—that's from my mom and my dad. I was the only one conceived from my mom and my dad. Uh, but my dad died ten months when I was seven months old from a drug overdose, and so uh, I never knew him. But he had nine, eight, or nine kids of his own. My mom had the same number of kids of her own. Uh, but I would—I am the youngest, and I am the—the the last from both.
0: Your your grandparents you know—they're the ones that raised you what what did your grandfather do for a living and and what did your grandmother do
1: grandmother was a stay-at-home uh grandma she was very 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 compassionate very caring um grandpa was in military for a long time um and then he went to the electrical engineering route and did that up until i went to high school um and then he retired so he was always working um And not, not, he is the, um, not the unfeeler, if you will, (laughs) I think that's a word. He's the one that doesn't really show emotion, calloused, hard, attributes all that ironically to the military, which I, um, I can understand, but also just, there's all these other things that are there. I think there's some regret from, from my mom, honestly. Um, And my grandma is very much a uh, stay at home in the fields kind of person.
0: What branch was your, your grandfather in? He was in the army. Yeah, army. Do you know where he served?
1: I I know that he was in Vietnam. Uh, I know that that was his that's his kind of like his title, if you will. Like that's the thing that he he carries on a lot of conversations with. Uh, but I, I'm not familiar with a lot of bases. I know he was in Virginia a lot. They they lived in Virginia before they moved to Texas. But when once he got to Texas, he was he was retired from military work. So. Um, He didn't have any forts here, but I think a lot of the forts, a lot of the bases that he was in were in Virginia.
0: You said that you had your own ministry from age 16 to 26. Yeah. Can you can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I um, have. I'm just super passionate about stories, honestly. And so I, when I was 16, was kind of thrown into youth ministry. Uh, I was a student pastor, I was a teaching pastor at a church. And uh, my wife and I moved to California and that's where I did a lot of ministry in San Francisco for um, a couple of years. And then when COVID hit, we decided that was kind of our, my cue to end because the I got tired of and sick of the church's silence and apathy in a lot of things. Um, and the more I talked about it, the more looks I got, if that makes sense. And I realized that through my own convictions and my own calling, the people that I was supposed to reach in my life, the people that like my purpose, or people like my mom, the people that didn't go to church, the people that didn't uh, find themselves in the hustle and bustle of church work. Um, and so that's why I stepped out of contextualized ministry and into entrepreneurship, which is just a completely different world
0: that i honestly still learned. If you don't mind me asking, what college did you yeah. go to?
1: I went to a private university, Biola University in Los Angeles, California. All
0: right. And, and you said that's where you met your wife. Mm-hmm. Where, where is she originally from?
1: She's originally from Fresno, um, and so her story is v- very similar to mine. She doesn't have as many siblings, but all of our sisters are stri- were strippers and are not anymore. She was the one that wasn't, um, and her dad was in prison up until the past. He was in prison for drug use, and then he was he got out about a year and a half, two years ago, and he now lives in Texas, about an hour from us, and uh, he's the only living grandkid that grand grandparent that our kids have. So. He's uh he's in and out of our of our house and our lives and hangs out with our kids and what it what have you.
0: You're you're an international best-selling author. What are the titles of your books or book? I, I don't know how many you've written.
1: Well, yeah, so the only one I've only written one that's been published. I have several that have not been published yet, but the one that I wrote is called The Leper in the Church, which basically it's really my heart for the church. When I was a pastor, I struggled deep with depression. My wife and I lost our first kid, um, and so I struggled deep with depression, and what I was met with from churchgoers and Christians was, uh, wow, like that's such a good sermon you did. Wow, that's so, so powerful. Wow, how brave of you to talk about depression, and nobody actually saw me and met me, and knew me in my struggle and so the leper in the church basically is saying those with mental illnesses are viewed as lepers lepers in the old testament are viewed as people who had to literally vote verbally say they were unclean and were ousted of community because of that and people with mental illness when they walk into a church feel the same thing of because i'm because i'm not like you mentally i have to almost pronounce that i my mental illness to be even attempted to be accepted in the community which shouldn't be that way and so it goes over a lot of different mental illnesses um, and talks about how the church should respond to those and how the way they've responded and the Bible verses they've been using are way out of context or, or so not helpful and how they can
0: be the change. Really interesting. So can you can you talk a little bit about your book and and really maybe dig in a little bit to, to that, what you just spoke of?
1: Yeah, yeah. So one one of the basically a lot of the way that American church and i'm being very general when i say that um but the way american church does church um really outcasts a lot of people it it makes church look more like a country club than a community center if that makes sense like a lot of churches you feel like you're walking into a country club type meeting when really church is designed to be a community center everyone's supposed to be welcome everyone's supposed to belong but there's just this construct that's been made if we're honest by inadequate narcissistic people <laughs> who have made this like idea that you have to be somebody to be somebody here. And that's the complete opposite. And so w- the, really, I thought I was isolated in my mental struggle with depression as a pastor until I was visiting a church in Los Angeles that's super well known, super um, mega church, if you will, a large church. And they had that which I thought was a Baptist thing for a while, but they had the greeting time where you shake hands and you hug necks and you act like everything's good with your life. And um, this lady who I didn't know next to me literally shriveled into a ball and said, I have social anxiety disorder, I can't do this. And so in that process, I realized, wait a second, the way we do programming as a church is not meeting everyone where they are. We almost ask you to be where we are but we say that you come as you are. And so it just is a really trippy, confusing thing. And so things like schizophrenia, things like anxiety, like I've interviewed, I interviewed a lot of people. I went to Reddit, which probably wasn't the best place to do book research on the <laughs> Reddit for? but I went to Reddit and I just asked the question and you just get a lot of people who are honest about hurt and honest about their answers and honest about pain and just say, Hey, like, I don't go to church anymore because of this. I don't go to church anymore because of that. And that's, and I wanted to dig in there. I didn't want to, a lot of times we, we like to, and we as the church, and that's what I mean, is we like to justify pain. Like we almost try to d- defend and justify as if it's your fault you're in pain and not our responsibility, which is where I think America as a whole and corporate America and the church is coming to this head right now in time, in this narrative of time where we're going to have to own our stuff and talk about where we failed to get to where we need to go Um, because America needs that. In a post-pandemic world, America needs that. Um, And so the book addresses things like, man, like I've had four friends who are pastors who commit suicide because they've had a depression and they um, just couldn't deal with it anymore, couldn't deal with the stigma, couldn't deal with the BS that people were promoting and saying about their lives. Um, and the book really is saying, it's not just depression; it's eating disorders. It's not just eating disorders, it's schizophrenia. It's not schizophrenia, it's anxiety. It's all these things that people are wrestling with. It's bipolar, it's v- victims of abuse, um, that we that it's not a mental disorder, but it just, they, they have this mentality and the, the way they think is just different and we have to meet them there. Um, and so the, the book really is my uh, an extension of my heart. Um, and there have been other books that have been written about the topic, since I wrote my book, um, that I'm now actually, as we speak, reworking my book to to uh, republish it and title it "Come as They." You're the first person to know this, David, or uh, title it "Come as They Are," not "Come as You Are," because the church says "Come as You Are," but actually it's "Come as They Are." Um, and so, how a lot of things that we we say as "quote unquote" church actually is excluding a lot of people, like my mom. Um, that we are either in, if you're if you're intending to do it, then you're a sick person. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the grace that you're not intending to do it, and I'm going to work through that that way.
0: Do you go to church
1: currently? Ironically, I go to the same church my mom's funeral was in. Yeah, which is just wild. Um, and that's just been through a lot of counseling and a lot of healing. Uh, but I see the same guy on a weekly basis that uh, did my mom's funeral, um, who I despised growing up. Um, I see him regularly. And we go to the same church that my wife and I, when we got married and came back to Tyler, we're like, we're sure as hell not going to that church. We go to that church. Um, and uh, primarily because our kids love it. They got a great kids ministry. Uh, but we're um, we we we're trying to find our way, uh, scars and all.
0: So just a little bit about me. I, I don't go to church. I have a lot of very similar experiences. I could uh speak on really my my experiences where I, I quite frankly experience a lot of hypocrisy yeah you know? and i and I believe that's kind of what you're alluding to one of the things that really um kinda well quite frankly just used to really piss me off. When, you know, I would be struggling with something, and and really, I I mean, it was depression. Um, Yeah. And I would be told, well, you need to pray about it. (laughs) Welcome
1: to my book, David. Welcome to my book. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's, It's almost, that's what I was told. Pray about it, read the Bible more, have more faith. That that type of effed up cocktail, which really is just another person's inadequacies and insecurities, who can't handle their own shit. If we're honest, um, trying to disassociate themselves from their pain to help you and your pain, which they literally can't. Um, and so that's literally what you said is as, as the basis of the book. People are met with in the church some spiritual prescription of pray more, read the Bible more. When the people that are saying that, that didn't work for them. <laughs> like if, if we're honest, that didn't work for them. Right. But they feel like because of their title and because of who they are, they have to say that. And Jesus didn't say that to anybody. Like when I read the Bible, Jesus never said, oh, hey, you're, you're struggling with this. Have you, have you prayed? When's the last time you prayed? You read the Bible, when's the last time that happened? No, he met people where they were, got down with them and saw them. And the church is the complete opposite, but they say they follow Jesus, which is really just confusing.
0: I, I'd like to learn a little bit about uh, Made for Purpose. Um,
2: yeah.
0: when, when did you found uh, Made for Purpose?
1: Two weeks ago. <laughs> Welcome to my story. Um, I Made for Purpose has been a dream of mine um, just through a lot of again, I love stories and, um, I love that your podcast is called from members to excellence because I love scars. I think, um, uh, the best leaders are the ones that carry their scars the best because like, everybody has them. Um, but made for purpose is essentially just the idea of there's this corporate, and it came from my, my studying, my academia, but the, and, and leadership studies in corporate, like research in corporate America, there's this mentality of just corporate America wheel, like, post 1700s, like the Reformation and all that, there's just been this factory mentality of what work is, like what jobs are. It's just this, you fit into the system, whether you like it or not. And you fit the description, you do what this job description says you do. And the bottom line and the metrics and all these things run the day. And that's not working anymore. Like right now, if you look on LinkedIn, we're in the great resignation. Like people are tripping out because it's literally... The t- same type of numbers as Great Depression was. People are resigning from their jobs at a rapid rate. Why? Because the pandemic has taught people that they either need to figure their stuff out and figure out who they are, or they'll always be what they've always been. And people are getting disgusted by this. Like America as a whole is getting disgusted by this. You fit, which I talked about earlier in the podcast. You fit in this system. You do this, and this is all your life is going to consist of. And so, ironically, when you're in a networking event you're asked two questions to begin the conversation. Who are you and what do you do? And my, my belief is those two questions are asked as separate questions because they've always been polar opposites. Who you are can't be what you do and vice versa. Because you, you, who you are and the job that you do, you almost lose who you are in the process. Uh, your passion doesn't matter anymore. You're all about the big man or whoever, what, whatever the company says you do, you do. And I think that it's a both and I'm, I'm not in the, in the camp of Michael Hyatt of like, screw your job, quit your job, start your own dream. Like obviously you're needed, waiters and waitresses are needed. Like food industry, all those things are needed for humanity to thrive. I think you can bloom where you're planted. And I think the organization's gonna stop looking at the whole idea of work as a, as a machine and as a human. I think we need to switch that, that perspective from machine to human because humanity has to matter now more than ever, who people are as humans has to matter. And when you think about funerals and obituaries, and this is really where the, where my passion comes from, you, everybody is born uniquely, but dies as generalization. What I mean by that is like, you're born with unique, like, I don't know how many kids you have, if you have kids or whatever, but my kids are young. And so like, when we're, when my wife and I are discovering them now, we're discovering what makes them unique. Like oh, this one's different from this one because of this this, or so-and-so. Like they're not the same copy person. But when you go to a lot of funerals or you read obituaries, it's all generalizations. Oh, they were kind, they were a good person, they laughed or whatever it may be. It just is very like you could copy and paste a lot of obituaries. Because the people, the human has been stripped out of a lot of people because of corporate America and because of the job force and because of all these things. So, Made for Purpose says, What if you, what if who you are can be what you do? What if you can bloom where you're planted? And what if you don't have to sacrifice one for the other? Like, what if, what if you actually could be who you want to be, like on purpose? And your funeral doesn't doesn't have to be this lie that either a lie that my mom's was or the generalization of like, let's concoct something about your life that actually you just lived in this machine and followed a scriptural life. And that doesn't have to be the way it is.
0: Now it's it's interesting that you're talking about this. Um, one of my past interviews, <clears throat> actually, I, I believe I've had this conversation a couple of different times, where discussed really uh, identity. You know, really discovering who you are, because you know I I worked. In the fire service for 23 years, and that's what I identified as. Yeah. If if you asked me who I was, I would, you know, I'm a firefighter.
2: Yeah.
0: But now I don't work in the fire service. Who am I? You know, I'm yeah. still really the same person.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, what I am passionate about is really what um, helps me determine the path that I'm going to follow and in turn, like my purpose in life.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And it just so happens that I have been afforded, just, you know, I 23 years in the fire service, I uh, was able to retire and that has allowed me to to focus on writing a book develop yeah. this podcast and and really you know coach mentor people those things that i'm i'm passionate about not making a whole lot of money off of any of that stuff so <laughs> reach it it's it's what i i feel it, it's really what i was meant to do and and yeah. my past experience has given me an understanding and and really the ability to to meet people where they are yeah and and empathize yeah and and really say okay this is this is where you're at where do you want to be and then coach them to, to get yep. there um yep. and, I, and i feel that's a lot of what you're doing yep yep
1: i think um just as you talked about being a firefighter my immediate reaction was okay embers of excellence that makes a lot of sense now like that podcasting makes a lot of sense um and also just the idea of, of meeting people in crisis like that's Nobody calls a firefighter when they're getting lunch. You know what I mean? Like that's just not a, a call you want to make. What my passion is, and I and um I think people almost like I think corporate America is almost like squelched the dream of a lot of people. Like you, you know where you know where you want to be, you know who you are. And that has, that, I didn't change in firefighter, you're David. Like I didn't change uh, through a job title that stayed the same. You love me if you go in crisis. But a lot of people have been, I think of a, a girl named Karen, who I know, <laughs> it's really funny her name is Karen, that's like a social media gift. <laughs> um, but like, she's been, she's a mom that literally her whole life for 50 years in this corporate America workplace type thing, and she just wants to make a freaking difference and every job she's had she can't but every job she's had she's like literally has pennies on the table trying to figure out like if the next paycheck is going to be enough for her for her kids or whatever and it's just karen was one of the reasons i started make for Purpose, is because there comes a point at, at in karen's life and it happened thankfully i had her as a client so that's happening more but there comes a point where you just give up and you're like okay like my dream that I had or my my passion isn't for me. Maybe it's for my kids. Maybe it's somebody else, but I guess it's not for me. And the question that I would ask the Karens in the world, <laughs> again, is if your funeral was next week, would you be satisfied? Probably not. Because a, a lot of your life has just been lived under orders of somebody else or lived under the dream of somebody else and you haven't been able to dream your own dream, haven't been able to, to delve your own passion. And if your funeral was next week, you wouldn't be satisfied, but you're not even promised tomorrow. Like nobody knows when we're gonna die. And so it's just this idea of why, why don't we start at your funeral? Why don't we start where your obituary is read and work our way there? What do you want said? Like write your own obituary. What do you want said about you? Let's work our way there. Because maybe you don't know what you, what you want to be because Corp America has told you, even, even have told you you're not good enough at what you're doing right now. Like you're inadequate you're at your job right now, or for your work is poor performance. And that's all due to people not work, putting people in the right places on the, on the right bus. But my passion is, I, I'm so tired of people dying, dying long after their dream died.
0: Uh, I'm curious was there an event or um, something that really just said, I, I, you alluded to it earlier, but when you decided to leave ministry, was there something specific? And then when you left ministry, because I'm, I'm sure that for 10 years, that was your purpose. That yep. was what you were passionate about. And that is how you identified as a person. You were uh, a minister, you, yep. you led your, your church. Um, yep. And when you left there, I, I'm curious what your mindset was and did, did you have that identity crisis? Because when I, when I left the fire service, I like went into a really deep depression because I'm like, who, who the fuck am I? You know, like yep. Yep. this is, this is shit. I never thought <laughs> I'd be here. <laughs> yep. Welcome
1: to my counseling sessions. Yeah, like that's um, literally last week, my counselor said, I feel like you're not in a crisis right now. And I was like, you're probably right. Um, what's really funny is, it's not funny, it's just kind of sickening, honestly, is the reason I left ministry is because I knew the people that God was calling me to reach aren't going to church, like they're not, um, and everybody has, the, everybody that doesn't go to church, and here's, here's, there's, there's a spiritual aspect to that too, which I'll talk about in a second, which you've probably never been told, and again, it doesn't, doesn't, isn't told in church, it was just really funny, but I realized that A lot of people that don't go to church have similar stories like yours, like mine for so long. There's an event or events that happened to where you tried and tried and tried to give grace and to like say, okay, maybe it's just one experience. And then finally the culmination of the cluster F of all of that, you're like, screw it, I'm done. And it's just the same, it's literally the same narrative of people just like, and it's funny, because you and I can sit here and talk as who we are, finding who we are, but so many damn people leave the church and find their identity in some other, like literally the opposite end of what they had in church. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that, that like LGBTQ, I'm not saying that all of that is based on church, but the the amount, if you look at the numbers, the amount of people that leave the faith and go to LGBTQ is staggering. And it's simply because humans just want to fucking belong. Like that's literally all humans want to do. At the end of the day, the goal of humanity is for everyone to belong. And churches have made themselves places of belonging, which is, I'm a, I'm a believer that belonging is a process. Belonging isn't a like, hey, come in and belong. Right? I think it's a process that people don't want to pay the price for. Um, but because we we use the same language that safety and security that they're looking for the hurt there makes them tied to a community that promotes just full acceptance. Or full, you know what I mean? So it's just like the opposite end of the spectrum, and it's just wild to hear narratives of that. So why why did I leave ministry? I had a conversation with a shepherd, which is it's literally what happened. There's a story in Luke 15 um, about – it's a parable that Jesus says about the lost sheep, and it's very common, very, very announced in, in scriptures. Basically, a Middle Eastern – Shepherd and the in the story had a had a flock of hundred sheep, one left, and Jesus talks about how the shepherd, being him, leaves the ninety nine and finds the one and brings it back to the flock, um, and that's like all of our worship music right now. It's all over everything. Like pastors are talking about this, this leaving the ninety nine to find the one, like that being Christianity. But when I talked to this shepherd, because I was like, a lot of time we like to read scripture through white privileged eyes which is just really funny because it's a middle eastern book but whatever um this shepherd said you know the only reason a sheep would leave its flock is if it's wounded like the only reason a sheep would leave a flock a healthy flock is if it's hurt and it would leave so as to not make the rest of the flock at risk of being hurt it decides as a sheep my hurt is not welcome here therefore i'm going to leave so as not to Put, put my shit on all the rest of the sheep and it's literally textbook David like it's like literally everyone's lives and the and the church has made this like worship songs and all this like oh how cool God is yeah but what about the damn sheep like what about the one that left and that's why I stepped out of full-time ministry and what's really funny is I can go, I can show you the damn Facebook video all everybody because it ever since I was 16, I was a pastor. So everybody knows me as a pastor. And I went Facebook Live like three weeks ago to introduce Made for Purpose in my first business. And I said, hey, a lot of you know me as pastor and not entrepreneur, but I want you to stop viewing me as a pastor. Like I'm no longer a pastor. I'm now a full-time entrepreneur. The amount of respect that I was given diminished drastically. Like the people that saw me as a pastor and saw that title, there's just this unconscious, inherent, like, oh, you know, the shit. But now that I'm an entrepreneur, it's like he's wayward. He doesn't know what's going on. And literally like the people that I were under my leadership that like I took through the same curriculum with made for purpose that I uh, now have that I am helping other people with that same curriculum, literally as a business, I'm inviting the people that were on my team to take. And they're like, oh, we're good. Like, we're good now, like you you taught us enough, like, and I'm like, you're not good, you work at a fucking water store, like congratulations, you're not, you're not who you are, but it's just this process of like, people, because I had the title, and be, and that's where a lot of the narcissistic people come in, is because I had the title, people think I have wisdom, um, which actually should be flipped on its head, like the, the wisdom should come first, and then the title should come, I'm getting fired up. I love this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: back to the shepherd. It was, it was a legit shepherd? Legit. Yeah, legit. And what's really, this is, this, is, this is
1: humorous too. Legit Middle Eastern shepherd. Brought to our church. Textbook. Was told to preach something and that a shepherd does not preach. Like like his, his identity as a shepherd was not taken into consideration when he preached for our church he, he talked about love your neighbors yourself which is like anybody can preach that but the fact that he had so much wisdom of the shepherd did not matter in white american culture because a lot of people aren't shepherds that they thought oh well people can relate to him as a shepherd but the way that he viewed scripture is just a completely different thing and it's just really funny that that part wasn't used he was just prostituted for his title and said hey like you come in here and speak but don't talk about what sheep do because like we'll handle that as white Americans,
0: thanks. (laughs) So you had this conversation with this Middle Eastern shepherd and he tells you why a sheep would leave the flock because they're injured and, and probably because, and this is what I'm thinking, is that when predators go after their prey they're looking for the weak and wounded yep and so instead of you know hanging out with the flock where they'd probably be protected they leave yep and
2: that's really interesting
1: because what's really fascinating is Silence is the thing that that puts sheep wounded sheep out of the flock. If a sheep so say it's a baby sheep, right? and mom and dad are in the flock too if if somebody if a sheep notices that there's a wound on a sheep in the flock, they immediately put that sheep in the middle and protect put it form a barrier around that sheep to where the prey the predator would have to attack the rest of them to get to the, the one one that's wounded. However, the sheep that lead the flock say either people don't notice their wound or and it's funny to talk as, like sheep as as if they have like can, can talk verbally but people don't notice don't notice the sheep don't notice their wound or they just realize that somehow some way the wilderness seems better than the flock and i'm gonna leave because of my wound oh. which i i'm pretty i can pretty damn much damn guarantee just in, in our conversation right now you and mine's wounds, right? Like when we bring that shit to the church, we're put on the outside. When in reality, if if we are sheep, which a lot of pastors say we are, but that's a whole different conversation, we should be in the middle. We should be loved on. We should be cared for. We should be tended to. We should be like, we should be lavishly loved in the midst of our pain, not outcasted because of our pain, which a lot of people are.
0: When, when you made the decision to leave ministry, can you, can you tell me a little bit about, well, how you felt about yourself, you, this, this idea that you're no longer a pastor? Um, I mean, I, I know that it happened with me where I, I, I'm like, man, eh you know, here I was a trusted member of my community. And now, you know, like nobody cares that I'm a retired firefighter, you know? Yeah. I'm not a firefighter anymore. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Nobody really cares. And it just, it was like, man, you know, is anybody really going to care what I have to say?
1: Welcome to my life. And I um, I think you can relate to this too. Uh, my wife, this is the best woman on the planet, but um, a lot of time, a lot of churches that I worked in, the way I communicated the gospel, the people, the congregations literally wanted me to be the main speaker and not the actual speaker. And so there caused tension uh, with me in leadership just in that and I would have my own team I'd be raising up and uh, like things were great but I was ruffling some feathers which I I'm a disruptor I want to do that being said when I as soon as I left ministry and, and I would try to watch church like I would be like damn like there's so many things they're not doing correctly or there's so many things that I wish I could do better or man I wish I could be back there or like there's just this like there's an itch and my wife would sometimes like when when she would hear sermons she'd be like you're so much better at that like i wish you were up there and that kind of like got the inkling because there's a lot of american church is as a pastor i'll be the first to say it is bullshit, right like and so i would i would hear a lot of sermons and be like that's not jesus like that's literally like you're you're literally talking about white jesus that's not jesus Um, but in my identity crisis, I realized that I found it was not necessarily the title, but it was the affirmations that really like, it was the acceptance that really for me was what I missed the most of, of leaving because you're right. Nobody gives a shit that I used to be a pastor. Like it might be a cool conversation for a, for a ex pastors podcast, but like nobody cares. Um, and obviously, as I mentioned earlier, no, the respect of me has gone down because I'm not a pastor. It's, it's just like Lathan has gone off the deep end, like he doesn't know what he's doing. Actually, I definitely have a more clear understanding of what I'm doing now than I ever did as a pastor. Um, but it's just that it's the title and the accolades that come with the title that's what I miss the most and what caused me deep depression and anxiety, really, um, for six to eight months um and honestly presently still in process with that um i'm just now getting to the point because you asked me earlier that i can go to church and not try to fix it because like that was that was my mentality and i'm sure if i was a firefighter like uh, like the response times and all those things would, you know what i mean like there'd be so many things that would just piss me off about things that weren't right with being a firefighter it's the same thing with the pastor like there's so many people and so many things that I just want to shake people and be like, do you know what the hell you're doing? And it's it's ridding myself of that. And my counselor my counselor asked me the first time two questions. I've never, never met her. She asked her two questions. She said, you're shirked you're with every title you ever have. Not even a dad or a husband. And you're on an island alone. What are you? And I was like, hell, I don't know. She's like, okay, so you find identity in your title, not in your person. You're you're made and you're latham and so it's just this like, are you are you confident enough in being your name? Like, is that valuable enough for you? Um, and then the second question she asked me, which honestly, just as yesterday I had counseling and I told her like for the first time I can confidently say I can answer your question with a yes. She said, "Are you okay with not belonging? Like, are you okay being the person to sacrifice belonging so that the people can belong? Like, are you okay with that?" And for the longest time i said no, but now I say yes, because I'm confident and, and damn the process sucks, David. Like I'm still in it, like it sucks, but I'm confident in who I am now. And I know that despite what my own people, like the people that literally gave me money and all those things as a pastor and now like silence, despite what they say, I know I'm confident enough in who I am.
0: In, in reading a little bit about you, there's um one of the things that I, I think is part of your your purpose in in the made-for-purpose. Um would you call it an organization, foundation?
1: Organization,
0: coaching, consulting, yeah, whatever you want to call it. One of the things that that you do is you, you offer people hope.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and so that's one of those things where when, when I'm coaching somebody, I'm sort of doing the same thing, you know, kind of guiding them, like, look, you got this. Yeah. You know, have, have faith in yourself. Just take it one step at a time. You know, you might fall on your face, but that's that's an opportunity to yep. to learn from that and you won't fall on the same side of your face next time you know yeah
1: <laughs> even it out next time yeah
0: <laughs> but one of the things that that I struggle with and and I I can tell by just talking to you this short period of time that that you're much like me where When you're not feeling very hopeful, how do you how do you snap out of it? You know, so that you can you can help somebody else?
1: Um phenomenal freaking question, David. Um I (laughs) even in this season, I really believe I'm starting a nonprofit soon, introducing this on your podcast. Congratulations. Um called a heartbeat from hope. Because I believe that people are heartbeat away from hope. I think it's that it's that it's that quick to obtain and it's genuine, but it's that quick. And people that commit that die by suicide do so because they are hopeless for a heartbeat. Like that's that's the only reason. Like in the, in that decision making, yes, depression leads up to it, but there's a decision of of hopelessness in the heartbeat. And if there was an if there was an antonym for our country right now, I'd be hope. Like nobody has hope in our country. But my passion is the power of handwritten words, not necessarily spoken words, but handwritten words. So how do I snap out of it? The same people that today are saying, are you for real, like, are you sure? Wrote me letters six months ago talking about how much I meant to their lives. And I still have those F and letters. And I read them. And I look at the impact that I made in people's lives. Maybe not today, but yesterday. Maybe not yesterday or the day before. And I, and those words make me feel my pulse again in the sense of, okay, like I'm not crazy. Today just really, really sucks. But hope is a heartbeat away. And so I think that if we took the time, and it's such a like we have these things now, and so like handwritten is just a foreign concept. But if we took the time to handwrite letters to people that would actually mean something to us, it literally changes their narrative at the least, changes their week. At the most, changes their narrative. Um, and that's what helps me when I'm in a pit. Is I literally, sometimes my wife has to bring them to me physically because I, I know that the hope is there, but I literally just kind of want to e or it. You know what I mean? Like I kind of just want to sit and sulk. But it's getting those letters that people wrote me in their time of need, in their time of crisis, in their five-hour situation, if you will, and just reading what I had an impact on their life. And I can breathe again after I read it. Like it just I just feels like hope comes back in my veins.
0: That's brilliant. That's uh, I never thought
2: of that. <laughs> yeah, I mm. that
1: let's let, let let's here here's a here's a sidebar conversation. For my season one podcast, this is this is, a, this is going to get to the same point, but Tim, for my season one podcast for the, side of the church, I interviewed a guy, a pastor who attempted suicide multiple times uh, just because he wasn't seen, attempted suicide, unsuccessful. We interviewed him in my podcast and um, I asked him what stopped, like what stopped him from, from doing that. He talked about the goodness of God. He talked about a lot of different things, but he talked about the power of words. And how words are super meaningful. Um, the day my podcast launched, which I which I was gonna launch with his episode, he killed himself. And my initial thought was, he was probably on vacation and didn't have the words in him. because I we texted every day. Like I sent him the most life giving text messages if I, if I was being narcissistic for a second. Like I sent him the most powerful words I could think of about how much how valuable he was to me. But there's something in the brain neurologically about just handwritten, taking the time. And he was on vacation. He was away from his family. And when he did it, but it was just this like, only if he freaking knew. You know what I mean? Like, if only I knew, if only you knew, if only he knew how freaking valuable he was to the grand story of, of humanity, he wouldn't have done it. But because the hopeless heartbeat He's no longer on this side of eternity for us. And so that has been even when I'm on vacation. Now my wife writes letters for me when I'm vacation. Um, but there's just something about this. And I think honestly, it'll change schools, David. Like if if students started writing letters to each other, bullying would go down, teen suicide would go down, so many things would go down. Um, we just have forgotten the lost art of handwritten letters. Um, And that's what's most life-giving to me. And especially in this season when I'm honestly, would say I'm still bound to depression. I'm still in this season of like, trying to figure out who the hell I am, but also saying and believing for the most part that I'm confident who
0: I am. It's gonna take me a second, but I've got something I wanna share with you. Um, You just made me think of something pretty awesome. So, stand by one second, if you don't mind. For sure. Here's the story. Before I left the fire service, I was a battalion chief. And early one morning, got a call. Uh, It was before shift change. So um, you know, my relief hadn't showed up. And, uh, and so In my battalion, I was responsible for six fire stations and it was consistently the busiest battalion in the department. There's seven battalions. All of them had six to seven stations. Now, The area that I worked, there was some low income, uh, mostly middle class. There was an area that was known to be pretty rough. This particular this particular apartment complex was not really. A bad apartment complex. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of crime there, as far as I could tell. I mean, I had, had a couple of fires there. I mean, there was some normal domestic violence things throughout the years, but on this particular morning, it was uh, it was a murder suicide, hmm. and the, the protocol. Now, in, in my the, the department that I left there, there are some pretty rough areas and with the prevalence of active shooter incidents uh, we were all issued ballistic vests and ballistic helmets and I can tell you that I've had to wear that stuff on more than one occasion. Now, this particular morning, I'm responding to, uh, the call came in as a potentially violent situation. And as I was responding, dispatch was updating the information that we all had. I was responding with an engine company and their rescue. So like an ambulance. And the difference between an ambulance and a rescue is a rescue does can do all the same things that uh, an ambulance does. It's advanced life support. There's paramedics on it, um, but they staff it with firefighters. So that is a force multiplier. When a rescue shows up on a fire, you have firefighters that can go in, they have their air packs, all that stuff. So the engine and their rescue, they arrive on scene and dispatches telling us that we need to stage until the sheriff's office has the scene secure. When I arrived, I arrived Shortly after the engine and the rescue um, pulled up in front of the apartment complex, I went, uh, I pulled in front of the engine, got out, put my ballistic vest on, could see that there was a lot of uh, law enforcement. There's a huge law enforcement presence in the uh, apartment complex. And at this point, I knew that the person that called 911 was uh, a young woman that had basically she said that she had been shot she said that he just came in and shot my mom and shot me hmm. so i went ahead and pulled into the apartment complex and when i pulled in there was a deputy that was waving me who uh well waving me towards them so i i just got out of the truck started walking over and he was like started waving frantically towards the apartment building where the shooting occurred so i'm heading that way and there's deputies going here and there they've got their ar-15s shotguns there there's stuff going on so in my mind i'm like man is the shooter still in the area well as i'm approaching the building i see uh, a body on the pavement and there's a firearm next to that person and that individual had taken their own life one of the deputies that was standing there said, uh, the the patients are are inside that door. So I went in and there was a young mother. It was a, a one bedroom apartment. The mother had the bedroom and Her daughter, who was, I want to say she was 14, had her bedroom in the living room. So as soon as you walk through the door and turn to the right, there is the daughter's bed. And so what occurred based on what I saw and just based on what was said to me, the the mom's boyfriend or ex boyfriend or whoever it was came, showed up at the apartment, pounding on the door. The mom opened the door and he shot her in the head a couple of times. And then leaned in and fired five rounds at the daughter. The daughter was hit in the arm. The side of the
2: head, the back, and the chest. Hmm. She was alive, and uh, <clears throat> I I checked the mother's pulse. She
0: didn't have one, but I don't know if you're familiar with what agonal breathing is, but it's you know, the last couple of breaths that yeah. an individual takes uh, before they completely expire. And, yeah, you know, the mom's eyes were open. It felt like she was looking at me. And as I went to check her pulse,
2: she took a deep breath. Yeah, you
0: know, an agonal respiration. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I know I've got two patients. But I called for another rescue truck. They got there rather quickly. I alerted the engine company and the, and the rescue truck that the scene was secure and they could come in and, and start rendering aid. the The priority was the daughter because, based on the injuries that the mother had sustained, it wasn't likely that she was going to survive. so our the bulk of our resources went towards
2: helping the the teenage girl When me and a couple of other guys, we
0: we moved the mother into the living room where we could have more room to work. And when the daughter
2: was taken out the the back of the apartment, she had to pass by her mother as we were working on her. And you could just see the... The anguish. Yeah. And she was, so she was transported to the hospital, to the emergency room. The mother
0: was transported as well, but uh, you know, she did not survive because of her injuries. We did work her because even though she didn't have a pulse, when we put the monitor on her, she had electrical activity, you know, was showing a rhythm. And so based on the protocols, we, we did work her. The,
2: yeah, the
0: Trauma surgeons couldn't save her life, um, It yeah. just wasn't going to happen.
2: Well, the following shift, um,
0: I I went to the hospital that I knew that we had transported the daughter to. <clears throat> I'd stopped that. Uh, well, on my days off, I you know it was I worked twenty four hours. And then i had 48 hours off so during the 48 hours off that i had i went to the store and i went to supply Um, i got a sweatshirt that i thought um would would fit the girl uh, an orange well a fire department sweatshirt uh, that i thought would fit her because you know I, i know it can get cold in the hospital and I bought a stuffed animal like a, a dog, a stuffed dog, like a puppy
2: kind of thing. And I wrote her a letter. Hmm. <clears throat> now, to give a little bit of the backstory here.
0: This Young woman was born in Puerto Rico. Her mom was from Florida, but had moved to Puerto Rico uh, after she had gotten married and you know, started a family there. The mom and dad got divorced. the The father agreed that you know their daughter would have more educational opportunities if the mom moved her back uh, stateside to Florida, so the the father wasn't around. You know, he still kept in touch and, you know, still had contact and all that. Well, after this incident occurred, he flew in from Puerto Rico to, to be with his daughter. And after she had Um, been patched up and and given the okay to leave the hospital, uh, one of the first things that she said, you know, she had told her father that she wanted
2: to visit the firefighters. Hmm. And uh, so her and her aunt and her father came to the fire station
0: and you know, took took pictures with us and um a while after i received a package, and this is after i had left the the fire department but i was told that i had a package and uh you know they had contacted me and said you know come come by and, and pick this up so i went when i opened the box uh there was a framed picture, it was one of the pictures that we had taken um, at the station and on it, it,
2: in her handwriting, she said, on the back of the picture, it said, to
0: my heroes with love and her name actually no i'm sorry it wasn't on the back of the photo it was she she used a marker and wrote on the glass of the of the frame and it said to my heroes with love and her name and um and i i want to share the uh the letter that i wrote and and gave to her i don't have the words to comfort you I only wanted to tell you that a group of men you met Saturday morning are thinking of you. We are now connected regardless of what the future holds for any of us. We are connected whether we ever speak to one another or see one another again. We have seen things that can't be
2: explained and can't be forgotten. The group of men you met are good
0: men and have been thinking about you constantly. The words I'm going to close with are words I've used to guide myself through many difficult events. I'm only sharing them with you because it is possible you may find value in them as I did. It is when we are faced with events that are out of our control that wisdom can either be our savior or it can be ignored. It is a universal truth that any significant event can be used to fuel great ambition and drive to do great things. Every individual has choices to make. We can choose to find strength and determination we didn't know we had and shape our future into what we know we deserve. Or we can sit passively and let the events that intersect with our lives chisel away at who we want to be. I am one of the men who met you Saturday morning. I'm going to leave my contact information for you. You may choose to never contact me. But if you do, I think it would be very nice to talk with you. And then I I sign my name. And I'd like to think that that is part of the reason why she came to the station. And part of the reason why she sent the picture and has remained in contact.
2: Um, and it's Like I until we had this conversation, I hadn't thought about that.
0: Mm. but like what I told her is really something that I should be telling myself every once in a while, you know. Mm.
2: <laughs> Yeah.
0: But um, yeah, I, I wanted to share that with you because that is, and, and you asked me earlier, you, you alluded to wondering whether or not I had children and I, I have one daughter. And uh, it's interesting because when I walked into that apartment and I looked at the bed where she was laying, and there was a, a female deputy that was on the bed and was holding pressure on her wounds.
2: Hmm.
0: She wore a striking resemblance to my daughter. Hmm. Same age,
2: same hair, same eyes. It was uh So
0: sometimes you know we don't ever we and I, and I know this is a, a fact because I I know that I have touched people's lives throughout my career and never heard from them. Yeah. But doesn't mean that I didn't have an impact. And, yeah. and I can tell you, and, I, and I've talked to other people about this, that you know, there's individuals that impacted my life and they weren't law enforcement, they weren't fire rescue, they weren't members of the church. They were people that took the time to say something to me or yep. yeah, they took the time to put their hand on my shoulder when I was grieving a loss. Yep. And there are times in the past when I was in a really dark place yeah, and considered yeah. taking my own life. And yeah. I think about those times and, and the time that elapsed after those moments and the people whose lives I touched after that, I would have never had that impact. And I I never would have thought that I would have impacted anybody's lives at that moment when I was ready to be done. You know, so for the people listening out there, we never know what circumstances are going to arise where we will be that voice of compassion or that empathetic touch or those kind eyes that that somebody looks at and and is moved in such a way that that they're given hope yeah so man i i i I fucking love that we had this conversation. Yeah. I I think that the people out there listening maybe, maybe share, share this and Yeah. Because somebody out there Yeah.
2: needs to know how valuable they are. Yeah. And um, I think we should end there, but I also think that just to speak into your life, David, I fucking guarantee you that girl knows exactly where that letter is. She's on the call right now, I guarantee you, she could point exactly where that letter was. Never doubt your influence, if you're listening, never doubt your words because people fucking need it. Thank you so much for uh,
0: coming on. I I feel like this is one of the more powerful episodes that... um,
2: Yeah, it's good. uh,
0: Man, thank you so much. I would love... uh, to, to stay in contact with you. This has been
2: huge for me. I, I really gonna, appreciate
1: it. I'm going to go pick up my son right now, but you
2: sure as hell guarantee I'm going to email you. Uh, brother. Nothing but love for you. Thanks, man.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is is the success of their team.